Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, and today... We're going to continue a conversation around the holistic side of health and managing our menopause, not just by fixing things, but by going possibly to the root of why we experience what we experience going through menopause. And so I am delighted to be joined today by Jen Harrington. She is a naturopath and she is also the author of From Invisible to Invincible. And I have so many amazing questions to ask her to talk about some of the key points in her book and the work that she does with women. Welcome to the show, Jen. Well, thank you for inviting me, Clarissa. It's lovely to be here. It's fantastic. I mean, one of the key things that you say almost upfront in your intros, in your bio, is why some women have have quite a simple menopause journey, one that they go through with ease and others don't. Why, as a naturopath, do you believe that is that way? Well, when you look at a, a woman's life, if the average age of menopause is 51, that's 51 years she's been on this earth. That's 51 years of different experiences. She may have been in different environments. She may have been eating a different diet. She might have had different stress levels during her life. We just have so many different experiences that rather add to our health or subtract to our health. So it's not just about the hormones because all women have a drop in hormones and stop menstruating, but not all women suffer. So I like to dig deeper and find out what are those individual factors for that woman's suffering so that we can get a more permanent solution. Exactly. And it's true. I mean, there is a narrative that's going around, and I love your input on this, that we are suddenly hormone deficient and there's something wrong with us. But this is a natural life phase, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. It's Some women see it as the opposite of puberty. And we certainly don't try and medicate puberty. So why are we trying to medicate menopause? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, why are we trying to do that? You know, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? 
we wouldn't even begin to medicate. And we don't really medicate pregnancy unless something's wrong either. No, they're all just natural phases in a woman's life. And I'm not anti-hormones, don't, don't uh, put me in that basket, but it's about finding out why that woman is suffering. And for some women, they do experience relief with hormones, but I see that as a Band-Aid. Great, I'm happy that you're not feeling so bad, but can we actually get underneath it and find out why is it that your body isn't adapting to this normal phase of life? What can we do differently? What can we change so that you're having a better experience? I agree with that. And I'm also not anti-hormones because I think they definitively have their role to play for many women who have an early menopause. They can be a lifesaver. I mean, who wants to be in their 30s and look like a 56-year-old person or have a body of that. And similarly, it is important to understand that we're not just our sex hormones, are we? Definitely not, no. But the other thing is also with medical menopauses, I do often sometimes suggest that women take hormones at that because it's an abnormal, it's not their normal, natural, slow transition to lower hormones. It is an abrupt change. So yeah, there's a time and a place for for it. Yes. And, and I think you said something really important there. You said something about it being a slow, natural change. And that is what perimenopause is, isn't it? It's a long period in our lives. So some women aren't aware of perimenopause and perimenopause can be up to a decade beforehand. And that is that time where they may start noticing some changes If they are getting any blood work done, they may or may not see the changes in the blood work because it's so different day to day, but they may feel the difference themselves. Exactly. And feel that we don't feel like we did when we were younger. We feel emotional. We may put on weight, sleep badly, or a whole host of other things because there are a lot of different, if we want to call them, symptoms. And you may not be the same as your best friend. She might have hot flushes and night sweats and you could have anxiety and headaches. It's the same perimenopausal transition. It's just showing up differently in the individual woman. Yeah, and that's because exactly we're individual women. And as you said, we have a different life history and we have a different current reality. True. And the good thing about that is it can be changed. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what a a naturopath does is help you to change those things. Yeah. I never want a woman to walk away feeling this is doom and gloom. I have spent 50 years eating fast food, not exercising. I might as well throw in the towel now. Please, no, 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 no. Everything can be changed. And it, it all starts with when you're ready, when you're ready to make those changes. It's like, the world just opens up for you. The right person to help you comes along or maybe the right book falls off the bookshelf or that your I don't know, a friend rings you up and says, will you start exercising with me? It's about taking that first step. It is. And it said it can be, it can be as small as a book or maybe you, as I've heard other guests on this show say, you know, I went to a talk and I was like, oh gosh, this so resonated with me. And they've gone on to totally change so much of their lives off the back of something that seems so small. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book was because women don't realize they have as many options as they have. So I I wrote it so women can realize that, yes, changing your environment. So if you're living in a moldy or a water damaged home, 
if you move, that can change your symptoms. If you're not exercising and you start exercising and so many other different factors, that it's also a conversation starter if you are working with a doctor or a different functional medicine practitioner that you can become proactive in your recovery. Exactly. And I love that. I love that word proactive because that takes us out of the I'm a victim, my hormones are ruling my life, which we hear a lot, and I just need to be fixed to what can I do to take charge, to take myself back in the driver's seat. Well, it's your life. It's your choice. I, um, I, I know for myself, I would prefer to be proactive and out there, but that's why I'm a naturopath. Yes, exactly. But I know that there are some really key factors that you draw onto your book. I mean, you talk a lot about diet, don't you? Definitely. Stress and lifestyle. It plays a key role. Key role and environment. But let's maybe start about diet because it is such a key part. And as we said, I think some of us have a diet that could be better. (laughs) The other thing is diets can be so confusing because there's so many different diets out there. And one week you'll hear you need to eat this way and the next week you need to eat that way. And it's so confusing. So I take it back to the basics and I say, look, we're designed to eat what Mother Nature provided for us. We're not designed to eat frankenfood or man-made foods. So let's have a look at where we can add more real foods to the diet, more fruits, more vegetables, more animal proteins and nuts and seeds, and less processed food, less less fast foods. And in the book, I also talk about some of the other concepts like farm to fork and eating seasonally and genetically modified food and organic foods. Now, I know not everyone can afford organic foods, but I love the work of the Environmental Working Group, and they have their list of the dirty dozen. So even if it's just those 12 foods that you buy in organic form, you have reduced your pesticide load by 80%. And I think that's a great place to start. I agree with you. And I think we are I was quite shocked. I mean, share some, well, maybe we'll share some of those foods right now in the show, but I was quite shocked when I saw what they were because they were things that I'd, some of them on paper look quite healthy, don't they? They are healthy foods. And I will provide you the environmental working group link so you can put it in the show notes. But the foods do change a little bit year to year, but strawberries without a doubt always tend to be number one. And strawberries are healthy foods. They're just unfortunately the most heavily sprayed crop. So I don't want to tell you not to eat strawberries. I want you to eat maybe strawberries that you've homegrown or that you've bought in organic form. Yes. Amazing, isn't it? And immediately we think berries, healthy, and yeah, they are heavily. I don't eat them. I grow them in my garden, but I'm very privileged to be able to do that. But if we think about always berries being pushed, then we think all berries are good, but we're right. Strawberries is number one. Yep. And then we've got things like spinach, we've got apples, pears, potatoes, capsicums, nectarines, and the list goes on. They're all natural foods. And the reason why they spray the crop is because they want to get a more bountiful crop to market. But unfortunately, that's not in our best interest. So like I said, just these 12 foods, if you can buy in organic form, 80%, your pesticide load gone, 
But obviously, if you want, can afford to and you have access to, the more the merrier. And homegrown is, is also another option. It certainly is, except homegrown is usually not that abundant. It lasts for a short time. <laughs> Certainly where I live, you know, my growing season is short. And even though I did have very good apple crop and the rest, uh, you know, it lasts a few weeks and then you have to choose something different. And I think maybe people listening to this are quite shocked actually, because they are bu- probably buying fruit and thinking fruit is really good for it, which it is, but not realizing the pesticide loads. So basically we're, we're getting bug spray inside ourselves. And when you think about your digestive system, the vast majority of your digestive system is your microbiome, is your good bugs. You don't want to be eating pesticide-loaded food because that impacts on your good bugs, your microbiome. So that's just one of the many reasons why you don't want sprayed food. Yes, you you want food that's, as you said, organic or homegrown. On homegrown is usually organic as well because we're only growing little crops And farmers markets can be really good as well, can't they? I love my local farmers market. Unfortunately, here in uh, Sydney, Australia, we're in lockdown, so I haven't been for a while. But yeah, I used to love going and talking to the farmers. They would give you so many hints and tips on how to cook. So, like sometimes they rock up with food that you go, What is that? And they'll go, It's this, and this is how you cook it and prepare it. Or why don't you come camping on our farm? I like the farmers market, I miss it. Yes, I think so. I think so. We don't have them very much here now, but when I get the opportunity, it's fantastic. But there are other things in our diet as well, aren't there, that we should be looking at, like the antibiotic or hormone growth levels in meats? Yes, definitely. If if you can afford it, I would certainly be recommending that you avoid factory farm meats and be looking more at organic or grass-fed meats rather than grain-fed meats because there is genetically modified animals as well as genetically modified crops, which is so scary. Salmon's an example of a genetically modified animal. Yeah. And uh, we feel like we're busting everybody's myths now because we're all being told to eat more fatty fish. And I'll share this here because I actually watched a TV series here on Norwegian salmon and I don't eat it. My husband's Icelandic, so he just goes, we're not eating this. This is not fish. <laughs> End point story. He said, taste it. It's all oily and fatty. And of course, they're breeding these animals in small cages. They have huge amounts of antibiotics given to them to keep the sea lice at bay. It's just a disgusting food, which is misbuzzing everything we're told about eating. And I can't imagine it's nice for the animal either. Oh no, it must be it must be horrible. They're bred in these little cages and they're kept in vast numbers in little cages and they you know, they eat each other. I mean it, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Okay, so wild caught fish, not farmed fish. But one of the, the key dietary problems I see at this stage of life is lack of protein. And unfortunately, as we age, we start to have issues with our bones and with our muscles. And we really need to have adequate amino acids or adequate proteins in order to maintain muscle mass and maintain bone mass. So I do have a preference for animal products, for animal proteins, but I'm also willing to work with the woman sitting in front of me. Yes, I mean, there's, it's very true that we do need, and lots of us can't make all those amino acids in our bodies, can we, Jen? 
No, well, that's why they're essential amino acids. We need to consume them in our diet. The branch chain amino acids are some of the essential ones. But even when we're looking at diet, you can look at combining certain foods to have a better amino acid profile, where if you were to eat animal products, they come pre-packaged by Mother Nature with a complete amino acid profile. But I understand there's reasons why women won't eat animal proteins. And personally, I'm willing to work with them, but I also want to find out why and if they would consider, say, adding eggs or adding fish or, or adding some form, depending on their individual beliefs. Yes. And I think there's levels of being, there's a big difference between being vegan and being vegetarian, having been a vegetarian and having many friends who are vegan. I mean, you have to actually work quite hard to create a fully balanced diet if you're a vegan. It's almost a full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of people go vegan and cut out everything. And as you're right, at this stage of life where we're losing muscle mass, aren't we, because of our hormonal changes and we're aging, then we do need to do that added piece. Otherwise, we are at risk, aren't we, of, of more serious illnesses. I think osteoporosis is very serious. So I certainly would be doing everything in my power to reduce my risk of going down that path. Yes, having friends who have advanced stages of osteoporosis, it's opened my eyes to what this illness really looks like. Yeah, it's it's not nice. It's quite nasty. But there's there's other things like weight-bearing exercise that can help a lot with maintaining the muscle mass and the bone mass and helping to rebuild some of that. So it's I don't want to get down a doom and gloom path because there's always proactive things that you can be doing. There is. And I think that is an important part of diet. So really, it is about making sure we're getting enough plant-based, isn't it? And enough enough good quality protein into the diet. Well, I think it can also start with having some tests done to find out where you are, because your motivation is going to be very different if you find out that you are osteopenic moving towards osteoporosis versus having good bone mass. So when a woman starts working with me, I will go through her history and I will also consider certain tests to see where we would even start because I like to, I think of it as like the cornerstones or the foundations to good health and you want to make sure you've got all of those bricks in a row so that you can build and grow from that. And in the book, I talk about vitamins and minerals because these are essential for good health and nothing else can help overcome deficiencies apart from supplementing or adding those deficient, those nutrients back into the diet. So it's so many different ways you can go. <laughs> but I think that, that there is that, as you said, that hope, Jen, that you can actually go down a whole different set of routes and have a really good deep look at your diet and then make the changes. And obviously that one of the other big ones is cutting back on sugar, isn't it? Oh, that's that's Number one, (laughs) I would definitely say start with reducing your sugar load and also your seed oils. Some of your omega-6 seed oils are very pro-inflammatory and are quite nasty as well. So that would be my top two things to avoid. Yes. So that's things like some sunflowers, isn't it? And veg, some vegetable oils. Am I right? Correct. So it's canola. It's cottonseed, it's soybean oil, sunflower oil, a lot of the things that fast foods would deep fry in. 
Yes. And that are the cheaper oils in our... Processed food. Yeah, supermarket. Yeah. And in processed food. Yes. Yes. And replace them with good oils, good fats and oils. Absolutely. So things like olives, avocados, eggs, your omega-3s from your fish oils. Definitely. That's that. And, and that just gives us omega-3s and some omega-9s, I think, in avocado as well, if I'm right. So I tend to think about oils. I don't want to deter women from oils because it's another key deficiency that I see, but it's about eating natural oils in their natural state and not processed oils in a processed state, if that makes any sense. So if it's fresh from the food, then great. But if you're looking at hydrogenated fats and altered fats and deep fried fats, then they have to go. Yeah. They do. We have to. I think the message I'm hearing so strongly from you, Jen, is eat real food. Yeah. So food that looks like food your grandma would have recognized on your plate that comes from good, clean, whatever that means, sources so that it's, you know, and there's enough of it. Because a, a question I have for you, Jen, is a lot of women I, I meet don't eat quite enough either. No. Okay. So it can go either way. I tend to see more women in perimenopause might be eating more foods. And in postmenopause, we do tend to find that you can have a decrease in appetite. And a lot of that is coming back to their digestive function because we know in postmenopause, our digestive acids and our digestive enzymes start to reduce. And this is unfortunately a natural age related process. But if you can't digest your food properly and your digestive system is sluggish, you're not going to want to put more food on top of food that hasn't digested yet. So it is about turning that digestive system back on. It might be about having some bitter food. So maybe starting your day with half a freshly squeezed lemon in water to help turn on that digestive system, let it know it's time to work and to help stimulate that natural acids and enzyme production, or maybe you need supplementation. And there's also some other foods, like maybe having a bitter green salad, so full of rocket and dandelion and lettuce leaves like that, before having a main meal can also help to to stimulate digestion. Wow, there feels so much hope for being able to take control through some very simple steps there. Absolutely. I Like as natural as it can be, it can be very simple, but it can be very effective. That's true. Actually, one really simple tip I would like to leave your listeners with when regards to simple dietary changes is electrolytes with hydration. I can't tell you the amount of women that I consult with who have hot flushes, night sweats, that are sweating it all out. And just by getting them to add some electrolytes, some salt into their water, life-changing. Amazing. Yeah, and that, and that obviously women do need to be drinking enough if we're going through this. We, I mean, night sweats in particular can be absolutely drenching. I mean, they're diet so dehydrating for the body. Well, look, what is the difference between a, a grape and a raisin? What do you want to be, <laughs> the grape or the raisin? I want to be the grape. I'm going to drink my water and I'm going to add some salts and some electrolytes to help me maintain my hydration. Yeah, that's a very simple tip and a very effective one. I love that. I love that tip. Let's talk about one of the other key factors that you mentioned earlier on, and that is stress and also lifestyle factors. Stress is huge among midlife women, isn't it? 
I think in this day and age, stress is huge everywhere and in everyone. But yeah, it, stress can produce the same symptoms as menopause. And I quite often say, is this stress or is this menopause? What's, what's actually going on here? And I would always start with stress, having a look at their cortisol levels, seeing what we can do to optimize their adrenal function so that we can get a true picture of whether this is stress or whether this is a hormone imbalance. That is a really good start point because a lot of people obviously default and say it's perimenopause and it's not stress, but you're right. It can be either or or both, can't it? It most often is both, but you don't know unless you try. No, and I like that. So you actually do get people to do a blood test or a urine test for the cortisol? It depends. Sometimes I don't go down the testing route if it's quite obvious that the woman's got a lot on her plate that she's maybe looking after kids, maybe looking after parents, maybe working, maybe studying, so much going on. I don't necessarily always test. I would sometimes just say, well, let's, let's have a look. Let's, maybe we can do some stretches before bed. Maybe we can do some breathing exercises or some meditation maybe having a hot bath or finding out what things she likes to do to unwind and relax and add those in. Because every woman that comes to me comes in with a different budget. Some women come in and say, oh, can we do minimal testing? And other women come in and say, let's do all the testing. So I don't enforce anything on anyone. It's more about looking at that woman and what she can afford and what she wants to do. Because adrenal testing wouldn't be my starting point. It would if we were looking at multiple different factors, because there are so many simple lifestyle and nutritional changes we can make that may have a huge impact on her. And then we can have a look, right, now you're less stressed. Have your hot flushes increased or decreased? Have your night sweats increased or decreased? And so then she can see, ah, look, I've meditated this week. My hot flushes have reduced at least by half great. Okay, now let's dig deeper. What's causing the other half? And on we go. Which can be anything, actually. And each of us is different as to our sensitivity to stress. But we are, aren't we, Jen, because of our hormonal changes, more sensitive to stress? Definitely. And a lot of the early stages of perimenopause is when mood changes like anxiety might show its head. And then it's hard to get your head around what's actually going on for you when you've got anxiety going on at the same time. Yeah, it's hard to, should we say, unpick what's the cause sometimes there. I think, you know, I think, I think because yes, you're having, as you said, huge changes in our brain because of estrogen, progesterone fluctuations. And then we're also having a big change in maybe our stress levels. And of course, if we've got perimenopause symptoms, we're probably stressed because of they make us stressed. <laughs> yes. What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a bit like that. It's sort of around, around the houses and back again. But you talk also there about lifestyle changes. Some of your top observations and tips in that space would be wonderful. If you smoke, please stop. Please consider how you can reduce and quit because smoking is one of those lifestyle factors that intensifies your transition, tends to come sooner and more sudden, if that makes sense. So quit smoking if you're smoking. Exercise. Exercise is such a non-negotiable these days. 
And ideally, I like to see a cardiovascular, a weights, and a stretching component. So I don't want you only walking or only jogging or only doing weights. We need to do a combination of different things so that we've covered those three bases. Sleep would be another lifestyle factor, which I know is going to be hit and miss because it's another chicken and egg thing. Because if you're not sleeping, that really makes the menopausal transition so much worse, but it could also be the menopausal transition preventing you from sleep. So you might need a hand there. I think that's one area that women really struggle with. I think, you know, if we put out and we ask women what they're struggling with, they say, I haven't slept properly for years. And sometimes they'll say it's all because of hot flashes or night sweats. And then sometimes they actually don't really know. And then it can be, as we said, stress and anxiety that are creating that. It can also be urination. Maybe they're waking up to urinate so many different things. And that's why you can see there's no one size fits all. No, every woman needs to look at those factors in that are going on in her life and find a way around them. It's very individual. Yeah. And it, it's, you can't do this on your own. So you don't need to work with me. You might work with your local doctor or you might find another functional doctor, but I highly recommend you find somebody to help you sort through all of this because there's too many other factors to consider. Absolutely. And they don't go away just because you fix it with a hormone and HRT, even though HRT is something we're against. But a lot of these factors can remain. Correct. Look, some women do really well on hormones and some women don't. And it's, I, I kind of think if you're looking at your diet, if you're looking at your lifestyle, if you're looking at your environment and your different nutrients, there's no downside there is only upside. You're only going to improve your health and age well, whether you've got hormones or not. So I always start at the beginning. Even if a woman's coming to me and she's on hormones, I still want to start at the beginning. I want to make sure she's got the building blocks to also set her up for the time when she wants to come off them. Exactly, because that is the reality that within a sort of, a, and a lot of doctors recommending coming off within five years, that they certainly don't like women in my age, in the 60s, being on hormones, there's very, very few. And that's actually against most of their guidelines. They, you know, then we have to have, as you said, building blocks, good foundations, if we're going to age really well, and we should be aging well, we should be feeling fantastic in when we're 60, 17, 80. Well, I actually think our lifespan is going to be much longer than it currently is. When you're looking at medical advances and technologies, like when I look at my background, Women in my family live to be into their mid to late 90s. So I'm thinking I'm going to make triple digits quite easily. So I want to make sure that I actually do it healthily and happily. And also I want people, I want friends. I don't want to be the only 100-year-old on the block. I want there to be other women my age that I can be friends with. I certainly agree. I mean, I, I have a similar history with a lot of people being you know, a couple of them have been over 100, <laughs> including my own grandmother. So, I'm, And lots of them have been in their 90s. So I'm thinking, yeah, that is quite possible that I could be that age. And it's quality over quantity. So you want to make sure that you are aging well. You don't want to be on life support or bags full of medications. You want to be living the best life possible for you. Exactly. And there's one lifestyle aspect we haven't maybe touched on, but that's alcohol. I mean, I can imagine your view on that, but share that with the listeners, Jen. Okay. So 
my belief is it's about moderation. And as you can hear from my accent, I'm Australian. The Australian culture isn't based around moderate alcohol consumption. It tends to be more around the binge consumption. And that is something that I want to discourage you from doing. Like I'm not, no, you can't have alcohol. I certainly, when I think of my life, there there is celebrations that I would like to have a drink and celebrate, but it's about knowing the difference between moderate drinking and binge drinking. And many women during the transition will actually take a break from alcohol or just say, look, maybe I'll have a toast at, at a wedding or at a graduation and that's it. I actually don't want to be drunk or I don't want to have to worry about that hangover the next day because our liver is reducing in function. And whether it's age-related or menopause-related, it is reducing in function. So those hangovers are going to hit you so much harder than they did in the past. And I think it's a time to rethink your alcohol consumption and to find out what's going to work for you. If it's no, you don't need it moving forward, or if it is just the there's something special going on. I want to have a like I want a toast or have a celebration drink, but that's it. It's about having a glass, not a bottle. Yeah, I think that's probably the best I've heard. Have a glass, not a bottle. And for many women, that and especially as you said, in a culture like Australia, having lived in Sydney for 12, 13 years, I think I really noticed that difference from even in the UK, actually, where people tend to drink every day, but there's a real binge culture and that is feels very harmful. And I couldn't imagine being drunk, actually, but people talk about it a lot about how it makes them, you know, they can't shake it off. They're out, out for the count the next day. Yes. And that's, it comes back to your liver. It's like, you've got to be nice to your liver. Your liver is trying to process your hormones. It's trying to, you're like, we are, exposed to hundreds of toxins every day, whether you're putting them on your skin or breathing them in, and that's your liver. It's just once a break. So be nice to your liver, people. Be kind to, be kind to your liver. Maybe be kind to your gut as well. <laughs> it feels like there are some aspects of your life you need to bring some kindness and care to at this time. I think all aspects of your life need some kindness and care. I think that's one of the biggest problems with this transition is the lack of self-care. Women are so busy looking after everybody else, they actually need to put their own mask, their own oxygen mask on first. Yes, they do. And they need and they need to prioritize themselves. And that's a big change, as you said, for many women, because we've been almost taught to care for other people. And and that's our default. And now we're having to really, really step that up, haven't we? It has to change. It really does. Because if you want to look after other people, you need to look after you first. Because if you don't prioritize time for exercise, if you don't prioritize time for healthy eating, you're going to be the one who's maybe in the wheelchair or needs looking after. And if you really want to be able to be there for other people, you need to be there for yourself first. Yes. And, you know, the steps to doing that, I think, begin with ourselves, don't they? We have to realize that we can't go on the way we are. And I wonder, Jen, whether some people come through your door not saying, oh, I want to be proactively well, but saying, actually, I can't do this anymore and I need help. Yes. And sometimes it's also husbands just saying, I can't cope with her anymore. <laughs> help, help us. It's interesting. The last time I was at a live event, after my talk, I had more men 
come up to me to have a chat than women. I thought that was really interesting because women may not realize how much their lack of coping is impacting everyone else, where they think they're helping and looking after everybody else, where sometimes you just need to create space in your day, in your calendar for you. That is a non-negotiable, whether it's, you know, a walk around the block or a lesson. Like I personally, I love salsa dancing. (laughs) For me, that is my time out. And okay, I can't do it at the moment. We're in lockdown, but there will come a time where I can get back to my classes and have some fun. But it's also about the more joy you have in your life, the more happiness you're going to radiate to those around you because joy creates joy. It does. And and you can tell when people are happy because they kind of, they have positive energy, as you said, and that brings joy to others. It brings joy to yourself. It's almost like it's it's a virtuous circle. Absolutely. And the reverse is also the same. Yes, the reverse is also the same. We, we, we know that one. But I'm in awe that there were men who stepped up and talked to you more than, more than women. And I think that's a wonderful sign that somebody has a, an amazing partner who wants to help their, the woman in their life. Absolutely. They, they were all really wonderful, caring men that wanted to know what they could do to support and to help their woman through this time. And also to know that this is just a phase of life. It's a normal, natural phase of life. This isn't what your wife's going to be like for the rest of her life. No, even though it can be a long time. I mean, it can go on a long time. But for a lot of women, those, I don't know, five, six years for many women, where we just have to go through this transition, but we can go through it better than the not. And if you are having a, a longer transition, I really like to have a look at what's going on in your environment. Are you living in a water damaged home? Have you been exposed to toxins? And lead is such a big one. Like we grew up, we're the lead generation, lead in the petrol, lead in the paints. And although we may not be exposed to it anymore, when we were exposed to it in the past, our body knows that it's dangerous to have it in the blood supply and it would store it in the bones. And now we're going through a stage where we've got higher bone turnover and bone reduction. It's re-releasing these toxins like lead back into the circulation. So I do often find a toxicity issue with women having a longer transition. And yeah, that's me digging deeper to find out, well, why is this the case? Menopause, if your symptoms aren't gone two years after your menopausal diagnosis, there's something else going on. And the other category of women I see was women who made it through the transition and are now, two, five years later, starting to get hot flushes and night sweats. And I'm like, hold on, <laughs> this, there's, there's more to this story. We, we can't just say it's hormones. We've got to dig deep and find what it is. Yeah. And, and you're right. There, there is all these other factors. And I do sometimes hear that women are still having hot flushes. We can still have residual estrogen, can't we, in our body that can take time to, to, to actually go down to its final sort of levels. You do still have estrogen after your menopausal transition. The difference is the form of estrogen changes. It used to be when we were fertile that our ovaries used to produce estradiol. And then when our ovaries stop functioning and reducing function, there's that change to estriol. And that is different. That we need our adrenal glands to produce. And we also need good liver function and it can also be produced by our fat cells. And the other thing that likes to be stored in fat cells is toxins. So 
that's where I would look at. Is this a stress factor? Is this a liver factor? Is this issues with toxicity? There's a lot of things to think about. And I think if I feel encouraged that women have people like you, Jen, naturopaths that look at a holistic point of view that can really help women unpick this complex, I think complex and individual time of life. I love my job. I really see myself as a detective. <laughs> that is my job to go in there and to dig deep and to, to find out what's going on. And it's so rewarding. It is. And I think seeing women step from maybe being in one space, which isn't serving them and not serving the people that they love to, you know, like you said, there's this joy and there's this energy, this positivity that is possible for us to achieve. Well, that sounds like a woman living with passion and purpose and, and joy and abundance. That's, that's what I like. That's what I wish for, for everyone. That's beautiful. I love talking to you, Jen. I think this is a subject that is endlessly deep to dig into. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about the work you do, get a hold of your book? So my website is menopausenaturalsolutions.com. Like Clarissa, I'm also a podcaster and my podcast is the same name. My book you can buy from the website or from Amazon or maybe be lucky enough to find it in your local bookshop. I do complimentary discovery calls if you just want to have a chat and see if I can help or I also take one-on-one -on -one patients. That is wonderful. Jen, thank you so much for coming on Thriving Through Menopause and sharing an insight into the naturopath's work and some of the things that women can do to start to put themselves on a better path. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've had fun. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions. Why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me. And I would love to hear from you. So drop me an email, clarissa at clarissachristensen.com. I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast. And if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support, pop over to my website, clarissachristensen.com. You can find free resources and you can book a one-to-one -one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.